Well, the, uh, the special, special joint meeting between the City of San Jose Public Safety Finance Strategic Support Committee and the County of Santa Clara Public Safety and Justice Committee uh, to order. Uh, if we can do, actually, before we do a roll call, let me just read a few comments that we think are very important to say at the beginning of every meeting. Uh, before we begin, I want to remind the city, uh, I, want to I want to remind the City of San Jose Public Safety Finance and Strategic Support Committee and County of Santa Clara Public Safety and Justice Committee members and especially members of the public to follow our code of conduct at meetings. This includes commenting on specific agenda items only and addressing the full body. Public speakers will not engage in a conversation with the chair, council members or staff or supervisors. All members of both committees, staff and the public are expected to refrain from abusive language, repeated failure to comply with the code of conduct, which will disturb, disrupt or impede the orderly conduct of this meeting may result in removal from the meeting. This joint special medium city of San Jose public safety finance strategic support committee mouthful and county of Santa Clara public safety and justice committee will now come to order and can the clerk please call the roll for the city. I guess first and then we can go to the county. Chair Jimenez. Present. Vice Chair Duan. Present. Kami. Here. Torres. Here. And Batra. Present. Thank you. Vice Chairperson Chavez. Here. And Chairperson Ellenberg. I'm here as well. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go uh, jump right into committee reports. But before we do that, let me just say a few housekeeping items just to remind some of the uh, presenters. One is we're, we're hoping to keep each presentation of five minutes. Um, and the way I thought about the easiest way to do this is uh, when we go to item one, uh, we'll have, uh, you know, here at council, we typically give each council member, although they don't always take it, 10 minutes to ask questions, some, you know, you answer, and over the course of that, eat up, eats up that 10 minutes, so 10 minutes uh, max. Um, and then we'll go to item two, we'll hear item uh, 2A, 2B, and then we'll take uh, questions and such. Obviously, we're going to go to public comment as well. Um, so just wanted to uh, share that. Uh, we are due to end at 12 p.m., so... Uh, we're, we're, we're shutting it down at 11.59 and 58 seconds. Um, and so we just need to move this along, So, but, but I appreciate uh, everyone being present. Um, <laughs> the other thing uh, I would say just before we jump into the committee, I, I just wanted to give a few remarks. I know uh, Supervisor Ellenberg has a few thoughts. Uh, let me just say that I, I want to first thank everyone uh, for being present today. Um, see a lot of familiar faces, uh, obviously from the county and of course the city. And to me, these meetings are very important so that we better understand the cross-jurisdiction efforts to improve public safety in our communities. And really, in my mind, uh, one of the most important obligations we as a city have and as a county have is really to provide for the public safety of our residents. Um, collaboration between our jurisdictions is supremely important and quite frankly, as I, as I mentioned, I think it's expected by our residents. And so this conversation, this interaction, uh, I know sometimes it happens be behind closed doors. I think is very important and really central to really moving our area forward. Um, the other thing I just want to acknowledge is that um, the justice system, I think we can all agree, is imperfect. <laughs> and, each of our, and each and every one of you and the departments you represent really play a critical role in, in, its well f in making it a well-functioning system that really strives to do right by all involved, uh, whether it be the accused or the victims. Now, these systems are complex, especially when we think about the folks with mental health issues. Uh, neither the city nor the county can do it alone, I think is what we all recognize. And my hope is that these meetings really can serve as a continuation of conversations whereby the county can learn about city efforts in spaces where uh, we specialize, and likewise, where the city can take away knowledge 
from the county on a variety of topics, such as uh, and especially around alternatives to incarceration. Um, so with that said, I want to say thank you for everyone to be, for everyone that's here uh, to take your time to really share with us some of your perspectives and knowledge. And with that, I'll turn it over to Supervisor Ellenberg. Thank you. Um, technical question first is, I don't know how to put this down. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that show of great competence, uh, thank you, uh, Councilmember Jimenez, um, for, for requesting this joint meeting. Um, I want to really appreciate all of the, the staff, city and county, um, who have worked very hard uh, and long to, to put this together uh, for us. What will happen today in two hours was probably uh, dozens of hours in preparation. These committees last convened in 2022 uh, through efforts between uh, me and, and Councilmember Perales on the topic of pretrial bail and release processes. I know that our staffs have accomplished much work in this space to improve communication and collaboration on those processes. Today's discussion will shift the focus to look at how we're detaining justice system high utilizers to how and where uh, we are engaging with them as, they, as we meet their underlying issues. So as we think today about the, the demographics and the typical charges of the high system utilizers, the county's focus on alternatives to incarceration as a tool to meaningfully reduce recidivism and create safer communities feels like exactly the right direction. Uh, a carceral approach to this particular population by comparison really only means an endless and very expensive cycle of arrest, incarcerate, release, repeat, um, and truly, that doesn't serve either the high utilizers or the community at large. In addition to the city-county alternatives to incarcerations working group, on which staff will soon report, uh, the board directed a series of meetings, our board directed a series of meetings on alternatives to incarceration, in which the uh, San Jose Police uh, Department participated along with more than 60 county and community stakeholders representing service providers, law enforcement, individuals with lived experience and survivors of harm. Our work on the 988 system, including behavioral health field response programs, alternative dest destinations post-arrest, uh, and the Mission Street Recovery Station misdemeanor uh, DUI pilot program are other examples of how, of how we are trying to meaningfully create safer communities. Um, just noting that given the limited time today and that the city is going to be holding a study session with the homeless outreach team on the 27th, um, I, I know that your folks requested that we limit the scope of today's agenda to mental health focused strategies deployed after a critical event has, has incurred. So really what that means is that we're removing from the discussion today um, the critical issues of supportive housing and targeted community outreach that of course works to prevent critical incidents before they occur. So I, I just want to acknowledge that it's not for lack of importance, but really lack of time that we are, we are taking this narrow focus um, today. And um, with that, I'm looking forward to the staff presentations. Wonderful, thank you. And rather than go through, so, so item one is introductory remarks. Obviously we've done that. Uh, and uh, really is to receive a report from the Office of the County Executive, Office of Public Defender, San Jose Police Department, related to uh, some of the work you all are doing. I'll let each and every one of you introduce yourselves rather than do that, so we'll jump into item one, please. 
Sure. I'm Paul Joseph, Assistant Chief of Police, San Jose, San Jose PD. Good morning, Avi Singh. I'm the supervising public defender for the research unit uh, at the Office of the Public Defender. Good morning. I'm Brett Hammond, Deputy Public Defender. I'm also in the research unit. Good morning. I'm Molly O'Neill, the Public Defender for the County. Wonderful. Thank you. And so um, I'm not sure who's going first. I think it's uh, SJPD. And, yeah, SJPD. And we have uh, Cindy, you're able to see us on the screen. You know, you got to the proper. Okay. Wonderful. Take it away. Thank you. In 2022, this committee hosted a joint meeting of officials from the City of San Jose and the County of Santa Clara to discuss the issue of how best to address persons in our community who are having frequent interactions with law enforcement. This first-of-its-kind meeting resulted in a collaborative effort between the city and county to improve both public safety and the delivery of needed services to those suffering from mental illness and chronic substance abuse. The work that has been done took two paths. One path led to improved mechanisms for delivering accurate, complete information to judges who are tasked with deciding whether to release an arrestee or keep that person in custody. The second path looked at alternatives to incarceration for persons whose illegal actions are driven by mental illness, chronic substance abuse, or other issues. The hope is that members of this group may benefit substantially and be least likely to reoffend if they receive treatment for the root causes of their behavior. Later, a third path was proposed to explore focusing greater prosecutorial attention on those most frequently arrested persons in San Jose. This third path is an approach that other cities have experimented with in various forms. We're proud of the work that's been done to this point and eager to provide you with updates on our progress. While there's much more work to be done, this collaborative approach between the city and county has been refreshing, productive, and provides hope for the future. Let's go to the next one, please. And I'll talk a little bit first about uh, our work on the bail setting. So when a person is arrested, uh, the police officer or sheriff's deputy will bring a form known as a felony affidavit that outlines the probable cause for the arrest and some specific information about the person arrested. And that form is provided to uh, pretrial services at the jail. Ultimately, that form is forwarded to a judge who then has to make a decision as to whether or not the person arrested should be held on bail per the bail schedule or released on something other than that or held at a higher bail level. And what we learned early on in our work was that the judges felt that they weren't getting as much information as maybe they needed in order to make an informed decision on these custody decisions. So we worked closely with the district attorney's office to devise a form with some more detailed information required of the officer. So whereas before it was just a whole lot of lines for the officer to kind of write in what he or she felt was uh, information that would help the judge, now there's really specific check boxes on different things such as prior um, failures to appear in court, prior violent criminal acts, things of that nature that might influence a decision to hold someone in custody. San Jose Police Department started a pilot program in one of our divisions where officers there used that form, delivered it to pretrial services uh, for the last, I believe it was six months. And um, we then went back with the district attorney and said, how's this form working? Uh, there were some revisions on their end. And basically what we're looking for right now is to finalize this form uh, and then ultimately it will be implemented Countywide for all police, all of San Jose PD and all police departments in the sheriff's department in this county. And with that, I will turn it over to the public defender's office. Mm. 
So uh, thank you again uh, for having us uh, here and holding space for us to have a conversation about the uh, individuals who have been subject to frequent justice system involvement. Uh, what we uh, did is uh, we tried to provide a picture of these individuals uh, by pulling uh, data and doing some qualitative digging uh, between our office to, so that as you're making decisions or deliberating, you have some information about their context. I'll hand it over to Brett. Thank you. So first I want to talk about how we classified people who are individuals with frequent justice system involvement. We just selected some parameters and then wanted to analyze what came out of that. So we selected anyone who has been charged with 15 or more cases in the last three years, and that yielded 70 public defender clients. I want to note when we say that they've been charged, that's different than being um, arrested because, of course, some individuals get arrested, a police report is written, a prosecutor reviews that report and decides not to file a charge we wouldn't know that person because they never got a court date. So we're talking about people who have been charged. And on the other end of the timeline, we're talking about people who've been charged with 15 cases, not necessarily people who have been convicted 15 times. A lot of these cases ended up um, with dismissals at some point along the way, and some in uh, not guilty verdicts at a jury trial, because of course some people who are charged with crimes end up being factually innocent. Of those 70 people, we looked at the racial ethnic makeup and found most of the same um, over-representations of certain groups that we see in the criminal justice system generally, uh, specifically calling your attention to uh, the black slash African-American population that's a little over 2% of the county demographics, but a little over 20% of the individuals in this population. So that's a discrepancy of about 10 times. Next slide. Next, we wanted to understand this population's needs. So we looked at their mental health and substance abuse status to determine that um, over 90% of this population suffers from mental illness and or substance abuse addiction, over 90%. We determined this by looking through individual um, case files to see which of these 70 clients is engaged in our mental health treatment courts, which have um, relevant mental health diagnoses flagged by their trial attorneys, regardless of whether the case ends up in a disposition that involves mental health treatment court, and folks who are involved um, who, who have 1368 proceedings, meaning a doubt has been declared as to their mental competence to stand trial. Now, those folks are being evaluated by doctors now or have already been evaluated, found incompetent, and are being treated by state hospitals. That 8.6% addiction is folks that we noted uh, suffer from substance abuse, but we didn't also see a mental health issue. I also will note that of the 82.8% that says mental health, a lot of them also have substance abuse issues or addiction, uh, we'll call that co-occurring, they suffer from, from both. Looking to the, their housing status, we see that 80% of this population is unhoused, 80%. We determine that by looking through um, our, our internal case management system to see where they're, how they're listed as far as their mailing ad address. We also looked at intake forms. Every time they're charged with one of these 15 cases in the last uh, three years, they would do an intake with our paralegals and list their contact information. And if it was still ambiguous, we looked at police reports to see how they're listed in the report. Because some of our clients might 
say it at one point that they have a mailing address, but at several other points in indicate that they're transient or homeless because maybe that mailing address is a cousin's house where they stay every couple weeks, um, but in reality they, they, uh, they qualify as homeless or housing insecure. To put these numbers in real terms, 56 of the 70 people are unhoused or housing insecure, and 65 of the 70 people suffer mental health and or substance use issues. Of course, all of our clients necessarily qualify as indigent. So in summation, you see that the vast majority of the population that meets these criteria are poor, mentally ill, homeless people of color. Turn back to Avi. I wanted to break down the uh, case types for you. I'd like to explain what a case type is. Uh, we designated case types uh, as part of our process. If a case type is designated as a misdemeanor, that means all of the charges connected to the case are misdemeanors. If a case type is designated as a felony, that means at least one of the charges is a felony. Uh, that could have additional misdemeanor counts attached to it. We also, for probation violations, those are felony probation violations or misdemeanor probation violations. PRCS is a, a form of local supervision uh, that is uh, post-conviction supervision. And the smallest blue sliver relates to people who are subject to a certain type of conservatorship for being gravely disabled. And the total number there is 11. Uh, what this chart demonstrates is that uh, the folks that we looked at is uh, 15 or more cases in the last three years. Then of that population, we looked at the total cases that we have coded for those people. So this is the breakdown without that three-year limitation, but for the 70 people. And 65% are designated as misdemeanor case types. We then looked within each of those, for those 70 people, we went back 10 years and looked at the 70 people's most common uh, charges. And, did a count, and the most, the top three charges for this population are misdemeanor petty theft, misdemeanor possession of drug paraphernalia, as distinct from misdemeanor possession of drugs, and uh, misdemeanor trespass. And as I observe these, uh, the, the comment that comes through is we the top three counts involve uh, uh, basically a theft not with violence force uh, or uh, felonious you know, conduct like property damage. Uh, that could be indicate financial uh, circumstances. Uh, drug paraphernalia is obviously connected to substance use conditions, and trespass of the various types is connected to being outside, living outside, uh, and in unauthorized places. Uh, so <clears throat> between what we've talked about, about the demographics of these 70 individuals, uh, the case types of the 70 individuals, uh, the takeaway is similar to what the chairs both indicated, that these people, uh, the 70 folks that we looked at, have severe uh, systematic issues that they're dealing with, housing insecurity, substance use, uh, mental health. And uh, what you'll hear from our office later at further points of this presentation is uh, the need for the things that have proven to work, uh, consistent engagement, intervention, programming, and robust services. Uh, we welcome the questions of the individuals here. Chair, if I can jump in, I think I missed my cue uh, at the beginning to, to start off and then I'll hand off to my colleague, Greta. Um, so I'll, I'll try and do my best to round us out here. 
Um, I do want to say thank you to the staff for presenting today. I think, you know, getting here and working towards a shared understanding of our problems and the impacts on the system that we collectively manage um, is important. Uh, more importantly, the strategies and services we have in place to address them together is even more important. Um, and at times, uh, the, even though we all operate in bureaucracies, there's uh, unknowns. And so this is incredibly helpful, not only for our policymakers in the committee, but for staff as well to figure out how we work together to address these. In the coming weeks, city staff will be coming forward to the full council with a detailed analysis over the past two years of all of our 911 calls and where the pinpoints are, where the regular calls are. And we take a step forward and start to analyze these calls and identify possible calls for service that warrant alternative approaches and alternative service delivery. Um, which this meeting and everyone in this room is critically important to solving together. So we look forward after we're through with council to meeting with the county executives team as well as the rest of county staff to show this data. Um, today, however, we get to start this conversation and work towards a common understanding of what these strategies and services are together. So I'm, I'm thankful and view this as a beginning point of how we work together. And I do, as both of the chairs said, I wanna thank them for their leadership and thank everyone from the county for working with the city to bring us here today. It is a brief two hours, um, but know that the impact is gonna be far greater for how we move to, uh, forward together. And with that, I'll hand it off to Greta. Okay, did I turn my mic on? <laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Greta Hansen. I'm the county's chief operating officer, and I just wanna thank the city for hosting us here today. It is um, such a pleasure to be here with all of you talking about such critical issues that affect the safety and well-being of all residents of our community and um, wanted to echo the thanks to the city for the work that we've been doing since our last joint meeting in September 2022 um, to really deepen the partnership and deepen understanding across city staff and county staff of the challenges we both face in meeting the needs of our community and all the efforts that are underway to increase collaboration, increase understanding, and really seize every opportunity to move um, the needle on, on critical issues of well-being and safety for everyone in the county. Um, the perspective that we as the county organization bring um, to many of these conversations is as the safety net service provider for so many residents of our county and um, as those of you who've been following our Board of Supervisor meetings over the last year have seen under the leadership of the board, we've been making really major investments in a lot of the other services um, outside of criminal justice needed to create um, the safety, well-being, and stability our residents need to stay out of criminal justice involvement, out of custody, um, and, and to be well. And um, I will just highlight that um, although our behavioral health infrastructure in Santa Clara County is some of the most robust across the state relative to our partner counties, um, the board is leading um, the charge in deepening our investments in a number of key areas and administration is really laser focused on certain um, components of that system. And I'll just say a few words about that. Um, specifically, we are significantly um, focused on increasing bed capacity for those um, folks in our community who need really the deepest end of our mental health services um, and who all too frequently in other communities and in ours end up in criminal custody because their mental health needs are very difficult to address with our current infrastructure. 
We're also um, making significant continued investments in expanding substance use treatment services. And um, we know that although um, relative to other communities, we um, have uh, less profound challenges in that area, the challenges are still immense and profound even here. And that more access to treatment and services is needed and that many times people um, need many attempts at treatment before that treatment is effective and we are um, continuing to increase access and infrastructure to support substance use treatment. Um, and then we are also in a time of really significant fiscal challenge, trying to maximize every opportunity to leverage new state funding opportunities to expand um, our facility capacity, to increase our reimbursement for mental health services and substance use treatment services. And so those are really critical, more, um, uh, technically complex efforts, but some of the most important efforts we're doing so that we have a really robust stream of funding coming in to continue to support expanded service delivery. Um, and I would just say, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing in each of these areas is um, only possible because of the really excellent and collaborative approach that folks across our criminal justice system who you're hearing from today have taken to really um, thoughtfully reflecting on the needs of the folks that we're seeing in criminal justice and how they ended up in the circumstances that um, brought them into contact with our system and how we can actually go upstream and really get at the root causes of, um, of criminal activity in our community, try and create the level of, of safety and wellness that we all wanna see by making sure folks get the services and treatment they need um, before they end up in, in our jails. And so I look forward to um, hearing some of the wonderful presentations from some uh, fantastic staff from the city and county that are forthcoming, including um, a, a really exciting opportunity to expand um, the approach that our district attorneys and public defenders offices have taken um, to uh, approaching cases for folks with really serious mental illness in a very different way um, than we're seeing in a lot of other communities around the state. Thank you so much, Greta and Lee. My apologies for not going to you. <laughs> we're trying to zip through and, and, I, and I missed it, so my apologies. We're gonna go to public comment. Uh, I'll go to the city clerk and see if we have any speakers uh, present. We have no public comment. Back to the committee. Okay, thank you. All right, I'm gonna go to the committee members. We have uh, Vice Mayor Kamei has some questions. Thank you so much for your information and report, and, and thank you for uh, the collaboration and partnership. I think that it's the best way to uh, go into problem solving and, and getting to a better solution. I was curious, you know, you um, identified the 70 clients with frequent justice system involvement, and you know, given that it represents such a small percentage of all of the ones referred, I was just curious as to uh, the percentage of resources taken up by the 70. Is it significant? Is it not significant? Is it high? Is it low? Uh, you know, just, just to have a context of if we're focusing on those individuals with frequent justice system involvement, uh, what does that mean in terms of taking up resources? So um, thank you for the question. I, I'm, we do not have a quantification of you know, the uh, points per uh, case so that would allow us to do a ratio. I can tell you that the Office of the Public Defender has six in-house 
social workers, they do have a mental health team and attorneys who specialize in the types of issues that this population of 70, the small group, 0.2% of our client population uh, represents. Of course, it's not going to be equal. I take the, 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 the assumption under the question is that there's going to be more resources that have to be allocated to those individuals. Even if you have a low-level case, for example, a, a possession of a, a pipe under 11364 uh, does not actually um, involve too much resources in terms of understanding the legal issues surrounding that case, but the resource needs are super high. Yeah. Um, so uh, we can probably re uh, try to figure out a more response, uh, more substantive response to your question and report back, but I'll uh, also defer to my colleagues if they have anything to comment on. Uh, Vice Mayor Kamei, uh, thank you for the question. And I just wanted to add that while these clients require a lot of resources from the public defender's office. They also, and I think that's why we're here, require a lot of resources from uh, the police officers who are encountering them, from the jail who houses them, if that's where they're uh, sent after the encounter with behavioral health and custody health. So the, the resource uh, allocation for these clients from everyone is very high. I guess, I guess what I would um, suggest is um, as you're thinking about, um, you know, we're, we're kind of going into lean times, right? And as you're thinking about the best way to um, allocate different resources, I, th I just think that it would be important and it would inform decision making as to what if that number were 100? What if that number were 1,000? Maybe there are more people who, who, who you know, will, will fall into this category. So I just, I just would like um, to think about it a little bit uh, broader in terms of what does it mean uh, for uh, uh, addressing, addressing the need of, needs of these individuals. Because it's such a small number, is it a small problem? Is it a big problem? Is it a problem that's growing? So I, I think that for future, um, meetings perhaps or for future you know sort of like trending of what it is i think that it would inform decision making in terms of looking at this and uh, i know we're going to talk about the different programs and all of that and i think that's wonderful i look forward to it but i also think that that uh, because you've pulled out 70 um, it's not clear to me as to uh, you know in terms of uh, is that it doesn't give me a lot of context, right? In terms of is it a big problem? Is it a little problem? Is it you know how how how, many, how much resources are taken up by these seventy people? And so I just think that if you can think of it a little bit broader, I think it will help me out in terms of looking for the solutions. And as you're going through your programs, it also will help me understand uh, you know the direction that you're going. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Vice Mayor. I think that's a logical question. I'm wondering if Greta, maybe you can touch on. Yeah, I was gonna just offer um, a, a perspective that is less specific to these 70 individuals, but just to some of the work that the county has done over the last number of years, looking at high utilizers of our various systems, criminal justice being one. And um, there's also a really robust and growing national literature around highest utilizers of city and county services in various communities. And one of the, um, one of the 
what I would say is sort of consistent findings of all of that research is, is two, two things I would highlight. One, that um, it is a small number of folks at any particular time who tend to be the um, true high utilizers of services and the amount of resources those folks are using during the period that they're those high utilizers is extraordinary. Um, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars um, per person per year. However, um, the period during which any particular person is a high utilizer tends to be a brief period. So, so folks who are struggling will be lower utilizers, will have a period of time where their life is incredibly unstable. They're bouncing in and out of um, uh, contact with law enforcement, contact with our emergency departments, in and out of um, our jail. And then there tends to just be, regardless of intervention, a little bit of a regression to the mean in terms of service utilization. That said, there are immense opportunities to try and intervene early in those folks' lives and to try and avoid having people go into that period of high utilization. So a lot of our focus on, um, on service delivery in our behavioral health system of care in particular and on things like rapid rehousing is to try and break um, that cycle that's going to lead people into that highest utilizer category. Um, but I would say that even if the number 70 or 100 or whatever is the cut point that you decide to look at our highest utilizers, at least of county services, the, um, the profile and the period of high utilization tends to be pretty consistent over time. Thank you for that. Uh, next uh, person is uh, uh, Councilmember Torres has some questions. Great, thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, welcome to our, our county. For, for being here. I think this is a very, very important topic, not only for our county, but for our city and our businesses and, and our neighborhoods. And this, this topic is a topic that council members like myself have to deal with every single day when we go to neighborhood association meetings or business association meetings <clears throat> or any other meeting at this at this, uh, at, as a matter of fact, you know, so much so that I've, uh, I've had to tell residents I'm not a county supervisor when they ask me what is going on with services to our most underserved communities when it comes to mental health. And so I wish I can have all the money in the world to, to make sure that we are dealing with our mental health uh, crisis, especially amongst our our unsheltered community, we left them out there for too long, uh, and so you know, with 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 drugs and alcohol and substance abuse brings in um, the underlying mental health issues they didn't take care of because you know we are a capitalistic society that doesn't uh, care for mental health services. So, so here we are, <laughs> and I would rather not have our San Jose Police Department uh, deal with our mental health crisis. That's the, the, the brutal reality is that I would rather not have our police department deal with, with all of this. But of course they do. And so, so does our, our justice system, right? Because we don't invest in mental health services. So, so I do have some questions uh, and, I, I'm, and I'm hoping that um, I get some clarity on them. Uh, especially since you know I, I do have to report to over a hundred thousand uh, residents and over a thousand businesses in, in 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 downtown San Jose 
and, and I believe this, the first questions are going to be to our district attorney, so thank you so much for our district attorney uh, uh, on being here. Uh, I, was, I was briefed that a lot of these, um, a lot of these folks uh, who come in and out of the, the, the system are assigned to the CAMP program, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and then how many of them have been connected to resources or have been mandated to, to, receive, uh, to receive treatment? Well, we have the supervisor of the CAMP team here, Brandon Cabrera, but, okay. but my, my sense, uh, the reason we created this unit is so everyone is referred to services. So the answer would be they're all referred to services. Now, whether they go to the services is a different question. All right. Um, that's another question, right? Whether they go. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, how many beds are currently available for those uh, mandated to uh, mandated for inpatient treatment, um, especially if they're a danger to themselves? Let, let me just say thank you for those questions. Is The way we do it here at the city, oftentimes folks are sitting in the audience, they have an answer to some of these questions. <laughs> so yeah. to the extent you have the answer, feel free to make your way down. We don't, you don't need to wait to be yeah. called, but, uh, or if you want to offer up a response or anyone up here. So, no seats but, uh, or the uh, other hot seat, whichever and, one. And Greta, I think, may have, uh, Greta may have some. We don't bite. <laughs> We Go just ahead. ask. <laughs> Go ahead, Greta. If you... Council Member Torres, I'll, I'll, um, I'll maybe start, but then I think Brandon may be able to share some, some other thoughts. Um, one thing you mentioned is to the extent they're a danger to themselves or others, and I, I'll just take that as an opportunity to sort of differentiate between two different um, legal structures that um, may be relevant in the lives of some of the folks that we're talking about. One would be the LPS, which stands for um, Letterman Petrus Short Act, which is um, the uh, the kind of body of law that allows people to be held in involuntary mental health treatment. For example, at the county operated Barbara Aaron's Pavilion, which is the county's acute psychiatric unit at Valley Medical Center. And that um, is a, a civil non-criminal body of law um, that allows um, law enforcement or medical providers to determine that because someone's a danger to themselves or others, while they are in that state, they can be held involuntarily in our um, locked psychiatric facilities. We have, um, through the county's infrastructure, as well as the acute psych beds operated by other providers in the community like Stanford and Kaiser, um, some of the highest number of beds per capita in the state. What we are challenged by um, is those beds, one, we have to hold people um, in our care to the extent they're meeting that criteria. Um, a challenge with bed capacity, and, and we can meet that need for those folks during the time that they meet that criteria for um, inpatient, involuntary psychiatric treatment. A, a big challenge that we have is when those folks are, are no longer needing that level of care and need to go to what's called a subacute facility because they do need to stay in a locked psychiatric environment long term, and that's only a small subset of the folks who are ever in locked psych. Um, there is a statewide, and Santa Clara County included, um, shortage of those subacute beds, particularly for folks um, with criminal justice involvement, uh, because uh, where folks have significant criminal justice involvement, even those subacute facilities that might otherwise take the client will often refuse. Um, but that is a, um, the area that we are most laser focused on at the county level in terms of expanding bed capacity 
and we are um, in the process of not only working with the um, handful of uh, community-based organizations that deliver that level of care, but also um, looking at expanding our own um, system capacity operated by the county, given that we cannot rely just on those community providers to meet the full level of need. We're ahead of most of our peer communities statewide, but we're still not where we need to be, and that continues to be a huge priority for the board, for administration, and, and an area of major investment in the coming years for us. There we go. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you for the questions. Um, just to clarify, yes, so my name is Brandon Cabrera. I work at the district attorney's office, and I am the supervisor of our newest unit within the office called CAMP. That stands for Custody, Alternatives, and Mental Health Programs Unit. Uh, Councilmember, you are correct. Many of the people we're talking about who suffer from mental health issues, who will eventually be supervised within our community, fall under my unit within the CAMP team. However, we are just one of the units within this vast majority of agencies that work together collaboratively in the mental health court system. Uh, we work alongside the public defender and behavioral health to address these individuals' needs as best we can in a very collaborative setting. And we have a presentation as well that we're going to talk about the different programs that we oversee in these three departments at the Family Justice Center. Um, but yes, generally speaking, if someone suffers from a mental health diagnosis and they are going to receive either probation or have been granted access to community-based treatment and supervision, they will fall, fall under our purview of both CAMP and many of our colleagues at the Public Defender's Office and Behavioral Health. Um, and we are going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later. As far as the beds and capacity, I think Greta said it perfectly, uh, we need them. Um, part of my presentation later is, and I'll just get to it now since I'm up here, is annually how many people come to uh, the mental health treatment court? 3,000 a year, or not more. Um, that's through 10 different programs, but that is an overwhelming amount of people between three departments, three judges, three public defenders, three DAs, and eight behavioral health assessors. So funding is needed, um, but we are doing what we can, and I think there are, there's been a lot of success. As far as actual beds, um, what I can say is that an individual who's ready for release will be put on what's called the jack list. That's the jail assessment um, coordination list. I always just say jack list. Um, that hovers at about, per day, 80 to 100 individuals who are ready for release into one of our treatment programs that we have within the community. Um, the wait time is about eight to nine days on average. Is there any additional questions? I can keep going or I can go back to the presentation. No, no I, would, I would say if you're going to come up and present later, yeah, just, then, yeah, you can just then, tell him that okay. and say, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you later. Yeah. That works. Yeah, yeah, I have. <laughs> we have to do it all the time. So. I, would, I would love camp to run have, it all. I have a lot of just, questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. That's why I'm not chair. I have a and, lot of And questions. you're almost out of time, <laughs> Councilmember Torres. So. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's it for me. Uh, I, I am looking forward to the presentation because, I, again, I, I have a lot of uh, following uh, follow-up questions as well. So. All right. Thank you. Uh, you know, just to remind folks, we're here till 12, so um, Councilmember Batra is next, and I would uh, encourage you to, to, to be concise. Thank you very much, Chair. Uh, I think I want to stay with the the, the flow you have laid out. And this section is basically giving us the data on which all the rest of the stuff is going to be presented. I'm just going to seek a little clarification on a couple of pieces of the data. Uh, when you provided the breakdown in different ways of the people who, who had encountered with the law enforcement, I didn't see a gender distribution in there. Is that 
purposely or it was single gender and hence nothing was shown as a breakdown? It, it wasn't purposeful. We don't have that data um, to present today, but we can get it and present it to you. It, it will be worthwhile in a future one if you're able to get to that, to Nauru, um, because I don't consider these people to be offenders. I consider them to be victim, and I want to know what percentage of those people might be in that category of the gender breakdown. So it would be helpful to have that in the future. Okay. Uh, second part is, do we know in terms of their encounter with the law enforcement, majority of them, you said, they all have the homelessness issue as well. Which came first, the encounter with the law enforcement because of other reason or the homelessness which led into or bleeded into becoming the encounter with the law enforcement? Uh, I, I don't know. It's, I guess, a, a chicken or the egg, and I think uh, you're, yeah. you're right to point out that sort of cyclical, vicious cycle nature of it. Um, but I, I don't have that data right now, whether they were arrested before becoming homeless or homeless before becoming arrested. But, but uh, if we had to guess, we'd say that the homelessness came first. It increases the likelihood that you're going to have an encounter with law enforcement because you're out on the streets and not in a shelter. Uh, but we, we don't actually have hard data on that. Okay. And in your one of the items you mentioned about the bail reform, and you are almost at the final stages, when does it get into, you said, in imminent in terms of its implementation. Uh, any idea in terms of more months or quarters we're talking about? Council member, I, I would actually defer to the district attorney's office. I think we're still working out a couple final details, but I believe it's fairly soon. Yes, the, the project where we're we're creating a, a form for the police officers to be able to provide the magistrates more information to make an informed decision as to whether to hold the in, in individual in custody pretrial or not. Um, we've gone through different um, pilot versions of the form and have um, practiced using it with some of the agencies. But I would say in the next, I think, several weeks, it'll be rolled out to all the agencies in the county. And as to what effect uh, that will have in terms of will more individuals be held pre-trial, fewer individuals, certainly we'll, we'll look at it and measure it and see. I, I think what's fair to say is we believe that, we'll that the magistrate will be in a position to make a, a better and more informed decision about who needs to be held pre-trial and who can be released and under what conditions. Thank you. I, I want to acknowledge that this study and the analysis which you have done, recognizing that the you gone there for law enforcement, but what you found is the people who really needed a different kind of help. And I'm glad that you have done that analysis and you're going to be recommending some programs which will really be addressing their need of the of the people who are in there 
and it is also going to improve our safety around the other people who feel about it. So I think it is commendable that this effort has been undertaken and you're gonna have some concrete recommendations for us to follow because I think it gotta be heartbreaking for the police officers to go there trying to arrest somebody who really needs a totally different help because they're compassionate people as well. So, so I'm very complimentary about this effort which has been undertaken and I'm looking forward to seeing the strategies which are gonna be proposed. I wanna make one other comment is that this is all the people who came in encounter with the law enforcement. I hope there's a similar effort or somewhat different effort where we are able to reach out to these people prior for th to them having a law enforcement action against them. And I hope we'll hear that either in this report or somewhere else because that's the focus which I would be very concerned about because all the encampments we, we have, there are people who suspect that there's all kinds of things going on and they don't feel safe about it while we believe a large majority of them may need similar kind of help rather than a law enforcement action, okay? So I hope to hear that in one of the other programs. And thank you very much for the analysis and I'm looking forward to the recommendations. Thank you, Councilmember Batra. We have Councilmember Duan. Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you for the, the work that you do and, and enormous amount of work and we're lack of funding and resource. I really do understand that. Now, the, the question, I, I've got a question for Greta um, regarding the cost. You said this costs in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in what period of timeline and approximately, you know, when you say hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands, is it 800,000, is it 200,000 per person? Depend on the case, I guess. Yeah, it, it, um, it varies a lot person by person, but I'll just um, maybe answer that best by talking about for folks who are having frequent contact with the criminal justice system, they're also having often frequent contact with our health and hospital system. They're being transported in ambulances. They're being receiving care in the emergency department. They may be also receiving intermittent sheltering services. And so when I say that cost, what it is is in... Um, communities, including in ours, where we've tried to look at some of the specific individuals we know are using our systems frequently and look at every single touch point they're having with some public services, whether it's the county services or the city services, the aggregate cost of all of the police contact and the uh, medical care and the um, time spent in, in jail adds up to tremendous um, cost uh, for those really expensive to deliver services. And so um, that's partly why I think there's um, such shared interest in, in the county and the city on, on trying to go upstream and figure out how we can um, meet folks' needs before they're really in those dire straits and utilizing those very costly services. And, and that's an effort that um, a lot of large uh, cities and counties across um, the country have engaged in. Um, but of course, you know, when we're talking about issues like homelessness, mental illness, and substance use, they're also some of the most challenging for every community to, to really get our arms around. But there's both um, 
profound um, moral and human reasons to do it, profound safety reasons to do it, and also um, public cost reasons to, to try and better serve these folks. Thank you. And in, in District 7, there's, there's quite a bit of uh, unhoused residents who are obviously have mental ill um, running across the street. You know, they're, they're, they're unhoused, they're unclothed for that matter. Um, they're not only endangering themselves to, to others. Now, if they haven't committed any misdemeanor, but yet they're unable to take care of themselves, how do you go about to address that? Do you put them on a 5150 and then you go to VMC? I know there's only approximately 13 beds over there. And then somewhere we have to put them into a sub-acute facility in order to protect them and protect the public as well. So, council member, there's three criteria to place somebody on a 5150 hold. One would be that they are a danger to others. Second would be that they're a danger to themselves. And then the final would be that they're gravely disabled. And that's a pretty, that is a pretty steep standard. It would mean that they are unable to meet their basic needs. And while there are a lot of people that would seemingly fit in that category because they're not doing a very good job of meeting their basic needs, they're eating, they're sleeping, they're breathing, they're, they're surviving. And that's, honestly, if we brought everybody that could fit into that category uh, to VMC, I think we would overwhelm them in a hurry. So um, that's really a population that I think is going to be addressed by the efforts that we're all trying to make here, is these folks that are pretty severely mentally ill, but don't quite meet the very steep threshold for involuntary commitment. Uh, thank you. I, I know this, uh, working at Ag News, and, and I understand, when, when, when mentally ill people out there, if no one brings them food or water, they'll die, literally. And I consider that severe. I consider that should be someone who should be in the facility, right? And, um, and it's sad to see that they're, they're in the winter and they're walking with no socks, no shoes. Half the clothes is torn. Their, their skin is as mud as the Coyote Creek, and they're laying in on the concrete, and that, that's inhumane. And somewhere we need to have facility in order to have these um, unhoused or, or mentally ill patients to, to be in there. And I'll, I'll reserve the rest of my question after the um, presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Councilman. We're going to go to Supervisor Chavez. So um, first of all, I wanted to just say how much I appreciate all of my colleagues' questions. And one thing I would just say to both of our staffs is that there are a number of areas that we're not going to be able to address today that we actually should be thinking about relative to how we agendize the next uh, meetings. And I think particularly around the issues that have been raised by my colleagues uh, uh, after we hear the next presentation. The one thing I just wanted to make an observation about is that in um, 20. 13, the county with Destination Home um, did a, a study that looked at the cost of homelessness and it answered many of the questions that you all are raising about what does it cost for someone to live on the street, what are we spending on them. Now this study now is 10 years old, but on the, on the high end we, we were spending as much for a seriously mentally ill person to be, to be living on the street of $129,000 a year. And, and I think um, uh, for my colleagues, especially those of you who've been in public service, you know how often you're seeing people you did as a firefighter, you saw people coming back through the process um, over and over again. 
That study framed for us th three things. One, it l launched the county in a partnership with the city to get into the housing business. That really wasn't what we did before. We we're doing that in partnership with you now. Two, it structured the way the um, the housing uh, bond was structured so that we were able to pull in people who needed permanent supportive housing. Because before that, we were not investing in homes that required that kind of ongoing support for someone to stay housed. And, um, and then three, I think the other thing that we were trying to better understand is could we alleviate the system of the high-end users so that we could take pressure off of those deep-end services? And I think, um, you know, we will have a, a bigger discussion about this, I hope, um, at some point in the future. But I think what we're all saying, and I think is really accurate, is that the earlier we can intervene, the better. And so um, one thing I would recommend is even though that study's old, you can still get it on our website and on Destination Homes' website. Because the other thing we understood is that to keep that seriously mentally ill person housed, we're able to do it at a th over a three-year period of time at almost a 95% rate. And that's, that, to me, that's like we're moving in the right direction as it relates to that. But the second thing is that I, I think what we're better understanding is really the point that uh, Councilmember Torres raised and that you've all acknowledged, which is the longer people stay on the street, the less likely we are to really be able to provide the services for them. So how do we get on the deep end, which the county obviously, in partnership with all of you, is really looking at how we're shifting those dollars as much as possible to prevention. Um, so I, I only wanted to use that as a data point because I thought it might assist as we think about our future um, opportunities to work together because I, I personally believe that we need to be using those cost studies in a number of different areas to dive in so that we can better uh, target limited resources, which answers what, uh, what Vice Mayor Kamei was raising. Thank you, Supervisor Chavez. Supervisor Allenberg. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I also really appreciate all of my my colleagues' uh, comments and want to you know frame first of all that as much as um, we really are talking about kind of a narrow piece of prevention around early intervention around mental health, which is critical. I I, I view all of the things essentially that county government does in terms of. Uh, meeting the needs of people who are large, largely um, vulnerable economically, socially, mentally. So everything that we are doing should be advancing people's safety, which ultimately will create, with people's stability, which will create safer, um, safer communities, whether or not the harms that we're talking to are, are related to, um, to mental illnesses. Um, and even the um, the chart, Avi, that you showed, um, showing the the most frequent um, types of misdemeanors, really seem to be in, in many ways economically um, driven or or connected. What I'd like to share with regard to the capacity issue, because that's that's a concern that that everyone has raised, is that over the last two years since the board, our, our board declared. Um, a public health crisis in mental illness and substance use disorders, we, we are adding at, for county government, at a rapid pace, um, inpatient beds, we are constructing, we are leasing, we are looking for every opportunity 
that we can to increase our supply of facilities at every level, high, high acuity, emergent to, um, to board and care. Um, and I think that there are a lot of places where there are opportunities for us to work together on, on um, siting and making available um, different types of facilities. We're also working on on expanding our workforce because this is a big piece also of having the clinicians, having people actually who are subclinical but are able to be in the community, reducing the amount of time that people are experiencing homelessness and increasing our attention on folks that are vulnerably housed and how do we prevent more from becoming homeless. So all of these, you know, we're, we're ostensibly talking just about um, the, the criminal justice system, but we're, what we're really talking about is building system-wide capacity to meet people's needs in the moment, whether it's mental health, housing, substance use disorders, and probably beyond the scope of this, this particular meeting, but I would, would encourage all of our city colleagues to think about partnerships that we can move forward on that will help us expand that capacity faster and keep more people safe. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I just had a few questions and, and very brief comment. The, first, the, the comment is Avi, just in all, in, in, and uh, Brent, uh, all the information you shared uh, I think was important to me. Uh, and what it did for me is really center this, this uh, the intersection of race, poverty, and addiction, right? And, and, and uh, I know that we touch those things in many different ways, the city and the county, and so I think it's just very, very important to lift that up and recognize that those are the societal sort of challenges that we continue to grapple with, and that uh, those are typically, as, as you pointed out, the folks that flow into this space, right? So I think if we address those at the, at the, at the core, right, then we solve some of these issues that we're trying to solve on the back end. So I just wanted to express that. The question I had is the 70 uh, that you mentioned in the research you all did, is that countywide or is that San Jose? That's countywide. That's countywide. Is there a sense as to how many of those are in San Jose? I'm not sure if you can run that at some point, but to the extent you can get that info, it would be helpful. So we won't have, um, <clears throat> we don't have that answer right now. Uh, the general way that we could look at that is the docket type and C dockets tend to be San Jose, but they're not exclusively San Jose. That's just cases that are handled at the Hall of Justice versus Palo Alto and Morgan Hill. So we could pretty quickly figure out that question and then we could dig deeper for San Jose cases. Uh, we can put that on our list of matters to follow up on. And I would just add that, generally speaking, the vast majority of our cases are San Jose cases just because the city is the biggest in the county, but we could we could certainly come back with that information. Okay, thank you. And I would just, you know, just put that out, put this out there is that, you know, we, the county, the DA's office, public defender's office, we have our hands in creating some of these forms, right? So I think we need, just need to be very thoughtful as to the data and the information we're seeking to sort of pull out of that that can help us make decisions. And if that data or that information that isn't there already, we can simply modify the forms as we've been doing, right, to figure out how we can extrapolate from that. Uh, and so I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, if someone can highlight some of the specific changes to the forms, I'm not sure if you're talking about the, 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 the deputy, Paul Joseph was yes. talking about. Yeah. Yes. If you can highlight some of the changes in the form. Sure. So one of the things we looked at is, um, you know, prior, why should somebody be held in custody as opposed to being released post-arrest? So 
if we're able to talk about things like the number of times the person's been arrested previously, the number of times they've failed to appear in court uh, for, a, for a scheduled court date, any threats of violence in the past, any violence associated with the crime um, at hand, J just more information rather than an officer, you know, more very specific questions to be answered. And I'm sorry, I don't have the form in front of me, but okay. um, rather than just giving an officer 10 lines to write what he or she believes would be most relevant for a judge. And, and honestly, this feedback came to us from the judges who said, hey, we, if, if you think we're not making good decisions, we're not acting on complete information. So it was a, an effort to try to give them as complete a picture as possible uh, of you know, whether or not somebody would be a, a good fit for a pre-arraignment uh, release. Okay, thank you. The, the other question I had is, you know, there's this term, uh, Avi, in the presentation you gave, the, the, you used the language frequent justice system involvement, which I, I understand what that means, I think we all do, but also the term high utilizer gets thrown out there. And so I'm wondering if we're comparing apples to apples or if we're looking at the same thing, And because I think that would be helpful as it relates to having these uh, cross-jurisdiction conversations. Yeah, we were concerned about the same type of apples to apples uh, circumstance. I wouldn't put any purchase on the terminology we use separate from how we define that population of individuals who have been charged with cases uh, with 15 or more cases in the last uh, three years. That is the uh, definition that we used and then tried to provide more context about the circumstances that those people uh, have, represent, whatever. Um, that might be a different definition for behavioral health or some other circumstance, uh, but that's why we put that definition on it, just so you can have yeah. transparency. And I appreciate it. It's clear to me, but I just, you know, it, it's high utilizers, what's been thrown around here at City Hall. It's been mentioned and, and, and sort of lifted up as something we want to try to address and figure out and better understand, but I, I just, I think it's important for us to move forward thinking about whether we're talking about the same thing, and so I think that's going to be critical to figure out how we, how we move some of this forward to the extent possible. Um, but, but I understand the definition that you uh, put out there. And, and the lastly, I would just say, uh, Supervisor Chavez, uh, mention of the cost study, I think it is 10 years old or however old it is. I think it's a worthwhile sort of exploration to figure out how we can better get more accurate, up-to-date information. And so to the extent the city can help with some of that, I'm not sure who, who sort of uh, paid for that, <laughs> but we can, we can have those conversations. I think it'd be interesting. Um, so with that, I don't see anyone else listed as wanting to speak, so I'll entertain a motion from the city side to receive the report, and then we'll move on to the county. I would so move. Second. Okay, we have a motion and a second. If you take a roll. Roll call. Are we going to be pushing on the screen? Okay, it comes on the screen. Thank you. And everyone's voted. All right, we'll defer to the county. I'm not sure if the if the you need to receive the report. Yeah, I can. I'll make the if your end is done. Yeah, our um, end is done. We'll make the motion for the county to receive the report. Second. We don't push buttons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not on principle. We just don't have buttons. <laughs> so Vice I think Chairperson Chavez. Yes. And Chairperson Elberg. Yes, thanks, Nancy. <laughs> All right, wonderful. Uh, so, so we'll move on. Thank you for that. We're, we'll go on to item two, which has A and B. Uh, it's uh, thank you so much for for the time. We really appreciate it. 
Item two is strategies in the field and after detention for servicing individuals with frequent justice system involvement. Um, I'll let everyone introduce themselves when they come up as you make your way forward, please. Uh, I would just, just the time check, it's 11.17, we have about 45 minutes, and so um, I think what's probably the most, the, the best way to move forward is 2A and 2B present, and then after both uh, presentations, we'll actually ask questions. Um, so whenever you guys are ready. Whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and start. Good, good morning, council members. Supervisor Ellensburg, Supervisor Chavez, Bruce Copley, Director of Access and Unplanned Services. Our first presentation will be to uh, inform you of the 988 um, program that we have along with how it is uh, in collaboration with the crisis response teams that we have within the county. In July of 2022, the federal government mandated that there be a universal 988 crisis response number throughout the country. In California, <clears throat> Santa Clara County is one of 12 designated suicide and crisis 988 response teams um, that are utilized. Individuals are able to call who are in some level of crisis, anxiety, depression, and receive counseling uh, by the suicide and crisis team uh, that we operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, along with that, we also have a non-crisis call line. That's the 1-800-704-0900 number. That's the number that uh, community members call if they're interested in receiving behavioral health services. If they call that number, uh, their, their first choice uh, is one and they'll be referred over to the 988 team. The 988 team then will discuss with the individual and either mitigate the crisis or they will make a referral to one of our uh, crisis response service teams. We are one of um, only a few counties that have used 988 as the background to how our crisis response services are provided within Santa Clara County. Uh, it includes, of course, the crisis counseling, which is both uh, call, text, or chat. Uh, it also uh, is a way in which the 988 team can ascertain a call for a crisis response service uh, within our uh, county from one of our three teams. Uh, 
And it also um, is the ability to uh, receive um, stabilization services and divert people from jails as well as from uh, emergency psychiatric services. So this is the schematic to how we have laid out 988. Uh, you'll see that uh, there, are two, there are two vehicles within 988. The first is the phone response for, again, individuals that are in some level of crisis and need um, uh, telephone uh, or some kind of support or they're looking for additional resources within the community and the 988 team will refer them. The second way is if someone calls and says they're in crisis, they have a family member in crisis, or they witness somebody on the street that's in crisis, um, they, will be, uh, they will discuss what that crisis is and one of three options would be made available to them. The first is the mobile response stabilization uh, unit for youth 20 and under uh, that provides uh, support to the family uh, with young ones that are have some mental health issues the that can either be a phone mitigation or they will actually go out to the family uh, with peer support workers family counselors and clinical staff to assess the situation um, and provide support for the family in some circumstances the youth will be placed within the crisis stabilization unit that uh, Pacific Clinic operates. Uh, they will also do additional follow-up with the family to ensure that uh, support is there as well as refer them into behavioral services where appropriate. The trust response urgent support team is the newest crisis team that has been developed in our county. It's run by Pacific Clinic and Momentum and it, it is for the lower level crisis services that are necessary uh, within the community. They are situated in all, all parts of the county. Um, they have teams that are, again, how, uh, staffed with peer specialists, EMTs, and clinical support staff. And they have vans that allow for community uh, contact and actually uh, transporting individuals uh, to appropriate housing needs or emergency needs that they, uh, they might have. The team is focused around services that don't require law enforcement support. Uh, so it's kind of the, the lower level crisis teams uh, that are provided. An individual may call 988 and actually say they would like to be referred to the trust team and the 988 team will direct them directly to trust. And the final is the mobile crisis response team that's operated by our county. It's comprised of clinical staff and it takes the more critical cases that may, in some circumstances, require a support from law enforcement, a co-response. Um, they, again, provide uh, either phone mitigation or they make field visits uh, to appraise the situation and provide the appropriate level of stabilization for the individual. This gives you a sense of, uh, since July, um, uh, 2022, the referral uh, demand for MCRT, MRSS, and trust. You can see trust uh, actually started last year and they have picked up over the last six to seven months. They are now receiving the bulk of referrals for crisis uh, response uh, services, which um, was part of the idea that with them in the community, uh, 
uh, with the community under beginning to uh, understand what their services are, they would be uh, there would be more requests for uh, services from them. The final element of that is the in uh, in-home outreach team. The in-home outreach team works with the unhoused and individuals that have had multiple uh, emergency uh, hospital responses or <clears throat> the responses to uh, psychiatric emergency response. They can provide up to 12 weeks of intensive case management support for those individuals, <clears throat> uh, identify what housing needs they have or what other behavioral health or health services they need and uh, get, uh, get them uh, connected with services through our our department for mental health or substance use services. This is just a, shows kind of the, the the demand of the 988 team in terms of calls. The uh, 988 staff receive about 5,000 calls per month uh, from the community, uh, and about. 10% of them, around 500 of them, are calls that will be referred to one of our crisis teams. The rest are services that the 988 team will provide in the way of support uh, counseling uh, for individuals or referrals for individuals to additional health care services as they need it. Um, 988 over the last year has picked up significantly. Prior to 988, we had a 1-800 number for the crisis, uh, suicide and crisis team. Uh, as 988 has rolled out and we've done a, a campaign in the community, uh, there is a gra greater awareness of 988 and demand on the 988 side has increased significantly. Again, this is a, gives you a sense of the demand of calls. You can see that over the last six months to seven months, there's been an increase in calls uh, either through the 988 uh, phone line or through the back line that we have for the non-crisis team. When we, when we first uh, implemented 988, um, we had about 78% of the calls that were received by our team. The way 988 works, if, if a call center does not pick up a call within six rings or 30 seconds, it is pushed to another 988 um, center within California. Since we had Combine 988 with crisis, that made some problems because somebody might be calling for a crisis response in our, our community and the call could have gone to Sacramento. Sacramento doesn't have the robust crisis services we offer uh, and so they mistakenly would refer them to another service. We've added additional staffing in 988 and today we receive about 95% of the calls come to our team rather than going outside. So we've made a significant increase in staffing to ensure that um, we, we have adequate staffing for that. Within the next six months, Trust will also have, uh, it's going to be recommended that they have a designated phone line. Uh, so we're assuming that once we have that line on, uh, that all calls that are coming in from our county for crisis work will be received from one of our service centers. Again, this is just a depiction of how the, the, the rollers have been reduced significantly over the last six months, uh, and we've improved the ability to handle all calls. This gives you a sense of when peak calls to 988 happen. It's between 8 a.m. and uh, about 
8 p.m. at night. And so we have staffed uh, the 988 team accordingly to be sure that we can meet demand from calls from the community. This gives you a, the overall sense of the crisis services in our community. Uh, the, we have the Psychiatric Emergency Response Team, PERT, uh, and PERT is a, a clinical staff that is assigned with a law enforcement officer and works directly through the agency with them. Those are 911 calls that um, the PERT team handles. Uh, law enforcement has found that having a clinical staff on more critical calls has really helped them identify what the appropriate course of action should be, reduce the amount of individuals that are either sent to jail or are uh, 5150 and able to find alternatives for those individuals. Uh, also been able to link those individuals back to behavioral health services. Uh, so it's it's been a, a service we've had for a number of years and, and the, the agencies that are part of that are very um, supportive of having that clinical staff as part of their uh, community uh, policing system. Again, the, the next one is the mobile crisis response. That's the more critical crisis calls that we receive uh, and are handled by our clinical staff. Uh, MRSS, again, is for youth, and the trust program uh, handles uh, the lower level crisis calls. Again, they are community-based. Their van is out of the community uh, on a regular basis again, trying to engage the community and what those services are, as well as being making individuals aware that those uh, crisis response teams are there to assist them. The, the other uh, crisis item with crisis response teams is after the initial contact in the community, they make a s second call within 72 hours to identify if the individual is still stable or they make another field visit uh, to go out and uh, support that person. Again, this gives you a sense, um, I, I, I would have you look at the total column. Uh, uh, for instance, MRSS, of the total uh, managed calls, 1,974, 500 of them uh, required a field visit. Um, many of them were managed on the phone uh, or provided uh, the crisis stabilization unit. Uh, and, and a, a small percentage of those um, interventions required a 5150. For the mobile, um, uh, response team that uh, the adult, the, the team that our county runs, uh, again, the total uh, number of calls was around 1200, about 40 to 50% resulted in a field visit. Uh, again, the others were able to be mitigated through a, a telephone call. I want you to note that of the total interventions, only 34 were arrests uh, and 5150 were 196. That gives you a sense of the ability for the team to stabilize an individual and not have to um, send them to another level of care or, or, or incarceration. Mr. Copley, they, they, 
want to continue to hear what you have to present. I would just say we have about 30 minutes left. I think we have. Okay, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, so you can zip through it. Uh, I'm, and you I'm, should I'm also. I'm actually done with that. Okay, wonderful. And you should also, everyone should know, it's presumed that everyone up here has already looked at the slides and reviewed it. And so, uh, but, but, you know, I just encourage you because we only have 30 minutes and we have a lot of politicians up here. You know, we, we like to talk. Um, and so, and so we need to leave enough time yeah, I'm to sorry. ask those questions. I was trying to talk quickly. Okay, so, but please. So okay, so actually the, the final slide is just a, a link to the reports that we provided to the county operations over the last years, and so that, that's available for you or for the public to take a look at. With that, I'm going to turn it over to... You all. Thank you. Hi, it's Jennifer Hearn, uh, Communications Manager for San Jose Police Department. Just want to run through real quick. Uh, we've been working collaboratively with the 988 team um, for probably the last year and a half to try to figure out what's the best uh, calls to be able to divert from 911 on the front end to right directly over to 988. And so some of the criteria we came up with was repeat callers stating a mental health need or potential need where no one is in current danger and need of police services. Parents calling for a child with behavioral issues regardless of a known mental health component. Carlos requesting mental health or substance abuse referrals for themselves or someone else that are also not currently in danger. And all of this, um, I think it was mentioned earlier with the, the phone bouncing to another 988 agency. Um, 988 came up with a 10-digit number that we can directly transfer to that will bounce back to us if we don't, if they don't answer, then we can take the call back. Okay. Uh, some of the things that we're still working on uh, directly with San Jose and the 98 team in Santa Clara County is comprised of my assistant communications manager and their director and staff. Communication staff working to become more familiar and confident in transferring calls. Um, the 911 team, when we get a phone call, we own it. It's, it's ours and we have to help that person. That's our mentality. And so it, it takes some time and some confidence building to be able to hand that call off to somebody else. And so we're working through some of that. Uh, both centers are working together to continue developing practices and how to best serve those in need. Um, which calls are better served there versus us. Further develop protocols and information to provide each other upon transfers. So what information do we hand over to them when we do transfer the call? And continuous evaluations of calls to add additional criteria to the transfer list. Um, there's also a state level task force that's working um, statewide with all the agencies. They are working on suggested transfer handle criteria that will help with the liability challenges that goes statewide. The streamline the transfer process from the state level, um, add procedures for a call in which the location of the caller is unknown and in need of services. Um, the 988 number works on area code and not location. And so it poses challenges to us if somebody has a New York area code and they call 988, they're gonna go to New York when they're here. And so we're trying to work through some of those challenges. Um, also, who should be allowed this position of the calls? Can we share the wins? Which builds the confidence, I think, in both teams on how we handle the calls. 
Um, that information is being, there is a 98 technical advisory board that they're uh, statewide that they're presenting that information. And then some of the challenges that we're still trying to work through, um, liability of transferring calls from 911 to another service if something goes wrong. Again, how does that fit and where do we, how do we not send somebody to miss the drop through the cracks? Uh, location services are based on area code. We talked about that. Um, current volume of mental health calls is beyond what 988 can handle right now. So the level of calls that we get in the San Jose 911 center that potentially could be transferred to 988, I think is overwhelming for their staff at this time. And then they also have a no answer call list, um, which if we refer 988 callers and they're on this no answer call list, then they're gonna come back to us. And so we're kind of working through some of those challenges and how that works and what our limitations are. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Brian Schab, Deputy Chief of Police for San Jose Police Department. Um, so this part of the presentation, I know a lot of you are familiar with our MCAT team as an alternative response model to mental health calls. Um, and this is just to highlight some of the successes in the department's commitment to engage in innovative alternative responses. Uh, so MCAT uh, has been in existence for a little over three years now. With all officers in San Jose, thank you, uh, a little over three years now with all officers in San Jose also being trained in critical incident team or CIT training. MCAT's a team of officers who are specifically trained to respond to mental health calls. These officers are better acquainted with and available to mental health services as is, this is their sole responsibility day in and day out. When deemed appropriate, MCAT collaborates with the county's uh, mobile crisis response team, MCRT, whose members meet with officers in the field to handle incidents. MCAT responds throughout the city and helps link people with the appropriate services. And then just to give a quick idea about the additional training that our MCAT officers receive is, in addition to the 40-hour CIT training, they get another 20 hours of advanced CIT training. They go through a 40-hour FBI negotiator school, a 20-hour de-escalation school, and an additional 30 hours of PERT training. Staffing and operations, we have two sergeants and four officers. They operate seven days a week with an overlap day on Wednesdays. Their hours of operation are 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. And those hours were derived because that two different ways. One was that's where we saw the majority of the calls that, that they would respond to occurred. And it was also in conjunction with the hours that the behavioral mental health folks were on duty and they could give them those resources. Some highlights really quick over the last year, fiscal year 22 to 23, um, MCAT handled over 1,000 uh, calls for service. They received 192 referrals from within the department. So that's telling you that the other department members are seeing the value of MCAT and reaching out to MCAT specifically to handle calls for service. They handled 144 holds for mental health evaluation, 528 referrals for service, and 31 community outreach events. And with all that, had zero uses of force. 
um, MCAT's collaboration with the county is in a couple different ways. Um, first, as already mentioned, with MCRT, um, the referrals to Santa Clara County's mental health via the, the law enforcement liaison, we had 160 in 2023, 24 referrals to camp, uh, and uh, 1,424 referrals to NAMI, which is the National Association of Mental Illness. Good morning, my name is Jaime Jimenez and I'm a Deputy Chief of the San Jose Police Department. Also with me is uh, Captain Spears and Captain Dwyer, in addition to uh, Director of Reentry Services, Javier Aguirre. As shown in the slide, the San Jose Police Department received a direction from the City Council in late 2022 to better assist persons who have mental illness and or substance abuse. The direction also wanted to address recidivism and emphasize the need to incorporate our county partners in the solution. By January 2023, the listed group of stakeholders was convened and began to meet monthly to find solutions that balance the needs of the individual suffering from mental illness and substance abuse. The group started by having presentations that informed uh, workflows and resources available. Unsurprisingly, we learned that the system had many capable resources that need more capacity. Through collaboration and networking, we have made many changes we feel will connect individuals suffering from mental health, illness, and substance abuse to services to help change behavior and hopefully reduce recidivism. It should be noted that this group, the Alternatives to Incarceration Work Group, has not defined which term should be used to identify individuals who have mental health illness and or substance abuse and who have repeated contact with the justice system. Before we speak about some of our accomplishments, I would like to recognize uh, our colleagues who are with us. So like you can see on the slide, District Attorney's Office Super Suda Brandon Cabrera, Public Defender's Office Supervising Public Defender Megan Piano, I know she's in the audience there, uh, Captain Antonio Fernandez with the Sheriff's Department, uh, Behavioral Health Division Director Sandra Hernandez, I know her colleague John Koss is not here but he's been greatly instrumental, Office of Reentry Services Director Javier Aguirre, Adult Probation Division Manager Michael Clark, I don't think Michael's here today. And many people from the San Jose Police Department, including all, our, all of our MCAT members, uh, our captains, and uh, Jen Hearn. Going back to the, this here, many of us met for the first time in January. I couldn't be more appreciative of the team for agreeing to join this work group, knowing that this commitment was in addition to their already impacted schedules. I want to thank this team for their unwavering commitment to the alternatives it's a tongue twister, Alternatives to Incarceration Work Group, and I'll now pass it over to Captain Brian Spears. Good morning. The Alternatives to Incarceration team worked on many solutions to address the concerns raised. To begin with, the DUI pilot program was launched citywide in mid-October of 2023. Since then, 62 DUI arrestees have been taken to the Mission Street Recovery Station instead of being booked in jail. By this action, it's placing the individual in a facility which is more capable of providing adequate services. The warrant site and release ad hoc program began with the public defender's office, the district attorney's office, and the PD by assisting individuals who had arrest warrants that would not traditionally qualify for site and release. But due to this program, they were able to be cited and released pursuant to a court order. Again, 
This process helps individuals recover without negatively impacting public safety. Since then, a formalized process has been created with the help of the sheriff's office and the court system. The behavioral health crisis referral form was developed in August of 2023 and now serves as a platform to communicate vital data about persons suffering from mental health illness to mental health professionals to facilitate subsequential uh, outreach and response plans. The narcotics pilot program is in development. Like the DUI pilot program, it will aim to provide services to, to substance abuse patients. After hearing the, about all the resources available within the working group, uh, goals were established. The, goal, the, goals balance, the goals balance the needs of the community and the clients. By offering solutions, we hope we can change behaviors and reduce the number of times individuals suffering from mental health illness and substance abuse interact with the justice system. Data on the number of clients offered, offering, offered services at the Mission Street Recovery Station, the resources provided, the recidivism could be a valuable measure of our success. Having a feedback loop allows for an improved delivery model. I will now pass it over to Director of Office of Reentry Services, Javier Aguirre. Good morning. Again, Javier Aguirre, the Director of the Office of Diversion and Reentry Services. Um, the, the county operates the Mission Street Recovery Station at the Reentry Resource Center on 151 West Mission Street, um, across the street from the San Jose Police Department headquarters and across the street from the main jail. The county has contracted with Horizon Services to provide recovery and sobering services at the Mission Street Recovery Station. The MSRS, the Mission Street Recovery Station, is a 24-7 facility that provides drug and alcohol and mental health drug triage and support services on a voluntary short-term less, less than 24 hours. MSRS benefits the public by providing resources to address public safety concerns while enabling law enforcement agencies, emergency medical staff to more effectively direct the resources to provide for the health and safety of the community at large. The county collaborates with all law enforcement agencies within the county to provide these services, such as the person arrested for public intoxication or to be, or, and uh, to be voluntarily admitted to the Mission Street Recovery Station. Since late 2018, San Jose Police Department has used the Mission Street Recovery Station. During the last fiscal year, 79% of the participants admitted to the Mission Street Recovery Station completed successful discharge. 41% of these clients were discharged to various behavioral health services, such as detoxification services, outpatient services. With a dedicated case manager and additional client support staff, 81 of, of the clients in this fiscal year um, were discharged to treatment services. On average, a participant remained in the Mission Street Recovery Station for an average of 13 hours. This helped Mission Street Recovery Station to achieve the objective of, of at least 50% of clients staying six hours or longer at the station. On this slide, you could see the, all the different referrals. So the referrals are from law enforcement agencies accounting between 25 to 30% of clients, uh, behavioral health service department providers, um, EPS, emergency psychiatric services, the county's three hospital emergency departments, the reentry resource center via the Valley Homeless Healthcare Program, mobile medical unit, 
and custody health in the sheriff who will refer clients from Main Jail or Alamwood directly to the Manchester Recovery Station. And as mentioned earlier, uh, MCRT and Trust also refers clients to the Manchester Recovery Station. In the, in the first six months of this fiscal year, 41 trust individuals were referred to the, the Sobering Center. On October 16 of 2023, the county and San Jose Police Department launched the misdemeanor driving under the influence side and release pilot program as mentioned. Um, this was something that um, uh, our, our Deputy Chief or um, Assistant Chief Paul Joseph uh, asked us to tour a side in Burlingame in San Mateo County how uh, they use this type of program and we launched it here in this county. Um, again, the, the clients would receive care and could access substance treatment, substance use treatment and other support services. First time misdemeanor DUI arrestees would still receive a citation and still need to appear in court at a future date for adjudication. And for the past three and a half months, as mentioned, 62 DUI cited releases were referred to Manchester Recovery Station. And as we refine the operations, the county will expand the program to all law enforcing agencies. Happy to announce too that uh, in, in order for us to increase the utilization of the Mission Street Recovery Station and improve access to services for the clients, uh, we relocated the Sobering Station to another space within the Reentry Resource Center. And since November 13, um, this is a new location. It's more spacious, comfortable, permanent laundry facilities, showers, private rooms for counseling and other support services. And while the program's point in time capacity is 20 individuals, the new location has enough space to allow the county to increase capacity to an additional 10 individuals. One thing that was mentioned in terms of the information about sound, uh, within the city of San Jose, so in 2018, um, San Jose PD uh, referred 23 clients. In 2023, that increased to 244. So the last two years, um, it's been increased to 30% uh, increase of usage. So with this new configuration, we'll be able to increase capacity and also expand to other services. And at this uh, end, I want to invite all the city council members and city staff to visit the Reentry Resource Center, and we could give you a tour of the Mission to Recover Station. And at this time, I'll turn it over to Captain Dwyer to present on San Jose's Police Department's next steps to explore collaborative solutions. Good morning. Uh, Committee members, council officials, and uh, members of the public. My name is Jason Dwyer. I'm a captain with the San Jose Police Department. Uh, today we are hearing about strategies for serving individuals with frequent justice system involvement. The strategy I'll be discussing begins with an emphasis on custodial arrests as the first step in a collaborative process to reduce repeat offending. When we talk about next steps, the following steps serve as what we believe would just be a starting point for custody-based uh, solution. Uh, exploring collaborative solutions means that we understand that the San Jose Police Department is just the first piece of this puzzle fitting upon making an arrest. But what happens after we make the custodial arrest? There are multiple steps or decision points involving multiple stakeholders, including pretrial services, the DA's office, the public defender, the judiciary, uh, the sheriff's office, county behavioral health, and additional service providers with an emphasis on treatment and housing. We will have to work with stakeholders to establish a common criteria and definition for those frequent justice system involvement uh, individuals, also known as high utilizers. And as mentioned before by my colleagues, uh, we are sensitive to the fact that labeling can be extremely polarizing. 
In the council member dated September 29, 2023, the term high utilizer was defined as individuals who were arrested four or more times between August of 22 and April of 2023. In that time frame, 64 individuals fell into that category. In preparation for this joint meeting, the San Jose Police Department's Crime Analysis Unit generated a list of individuals who were arrested or cited five or more times in the calendar year 2023. There were 49 individuals that landed on this list. Obviously, as we adjust the criteria collaboratively, the size of the list is likely to change. Before any custody-based program could move forward, all the stakeholders would need to be in agreement as to the set criteria in order to facilitate a standardized list. We would then create broadcast hits via the San Jose PD communications. The first step for the police department would be to provide the list to our communications division so that the information could be manually uploaded into the system to create broadcast hits. This means whenever an officer would request a records check on a listed person in the field, the dispatcher would advise that person is a high utilizer. It is important to note that this tool would be used to provide the officer with information. We would not be using this tool to go out and target high utilizers. In other words, the program is geared towards focusing on criminal behavior and not the individual. Custodial bookings for on-view charges and or warrants. Officers made aware of a person's frequent justice system interactions would be booked for on-view charges and or any warrants they may have in lieu of a citation. However, merely being on the high utilizer list would not result in any changes, which dovetails into my next point, the affidavit of probable cause and bail setting. From October 1st of 2023 through December 31st of 2023, the police department conducted a pilot where all swing shift officers were ordered to use a revised affidavit of probable cause and bail setting as well as a risk mitigation factor worksheet. This document would, be, uh, would provide an opportunity for the officer to document high utilizers or other mitigating factors when booking someone into jail. And as previously mentioned, it is under review at the DA's office. Post-arrest and discharge planning. Uh, well, then the question becomes, what awaits the arrestee once he or she is eventually released as a part of a program? This is where collaboratively, all the stakeholders need to have some logistical conversations about not only our, the needs of our high utilizers, but our collective bandwidth to implement a program that has a custody component as well as wraparound services. If directed by city leadership, uh, we will continue exploring policy alternatives to potentially include a custody component, such as those models utilized in Seattle and San Diego. Uh, a recent review of the Seattle High Utilizer Initiative highlighted that their criteria involved 12 misdemeanor referrals to the city attorney's office in the past five years with at least one in the past six months. I think it's interesting to note that in Seattle, as with San Diego, which I'll mention in a moment, the city attorney's office handles all of the misdemeanor referrals as opposed to Santa Clara County, which uh, they would be handled by the district attorney's office. The most common crimes reported in that executive summary were theft and trespass, uh, the theft most typically to support a drug habit uh, the most common drugs being fentanyl and methamphetamine. Uh, the executive summary also stated, and I quote, 142 of the 168 high utilizers were booked into jail. Holding utilizers accountable for repeat criminal conduct is the game changer that reduced their impact on the city. I believe there could be some more discussion on the definition of impact as it, as it is used in the context here, not only to impact on public safety and the quality of life in the neighborhoods, but also impact on the police department's ability to provide services. Uh, I continue the quote, 
The overall effort to get high utilizers to engage with services produced poor results, and their final uh, conclusion, again quoting, most high utilizers are not ready to go direct out of custody voluntary addiction treatment programs, and that was the experience that Seattle had. Similarly, the San Diego City Attorney uh, Smart Program, again, common theme here is that the city attorney's office is uh, in receipt of these misdemeanor uh, low-level crimes. Uh, the SMART program is an acronym that stands for San Diego Misdemeanor Arrest and Tracking. Uh, the focus is on chronic misdemeanor offenders with acute drug addictions and complex social needs. Uh, the SMART offers, uh, which an offer is basically anytime they're uh, arrested and booked in a jail and through that, that continuum, the criminal justice continuum, uh, they are made offers at various portions of that continuum. Uh, if an offender accepts an offer, that individual is diverted from jail and prosecution. They are uh, placed in a community-based supportive housing. They receive uh, an enrollment in a drug treatment program, a case manager to arrange wraparound services. Uh, and of course, if they abscond from any of those conditions, obviously criminal proceedings could resume. So in conclusion, while making custodial arrests is certainly an option, uh, similar cities have had success reducing low-level arrests, what we would commonly refer to as, as previously mentioned, trespassing, theft, or other quality-of-life type crimes. They have experienced poor results with dealing with a key part of the problem, which is the treatment of addiction. I would also add that there are legal hurdles in the state of California to keeping low-level offenders incarcerated, including uh, Penal Code Sections 853.6, as well as a case law uh, known as the Humphrey decision, and I would defer to the experts in the district attorney's office to expand on those challenges, those legal challenges, and that includes uh, that concludes my presentation. Thank you. Sorry, I tried to be as quick as I could. I was, I was going to, no, no, I appreciate it. That's why I turned on the red light. I was hoping you'd see it. You know. uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, um, you know, before we go, there's a few comments that are going to be made, but uh, I think there's an additional presentation after this, but I think we're going to table that, uh, just given because we're going to start losing people pretty soon. And so uh, before we go to some of the uh, some of the elected officials, well, he is an elected official. We're going to go to Sheriff uh, Johnson. I think he wanted to make a comment or share his thoughts on what was shared. Well, I'm not sure what thought you want me to share, but I'd be more than happy. Or if, actually, you have any, if you have any thoughts based no, on what No, I actually, heard. I do have his thought, and I really want to uh, commend Bruce and his staff and behavioral health, because I do think that's one of the areas that we have the greatest possibility, and I do think this county, and including this city, is doing everything it can to address those needs and probably want a, a model-setting environment. And especially with the, whether MCAT or in our situation, the PERT teams, I think those are going to be uh, a direction law enforcement agencies across the country will ultimately go to, is utilizing law enforcement personnel in collaboration with mental health clinicians. Because our program is very similar, similar in structure to what San Jose is doing with the almost exact same number of success, meaning very, very few uses of force and very, very few arrests coming out of those interactions. So uh, those are really my thoughts on that. But I do feel that, you know, this conversation around drug addiction, poverty, uh, homelessness, you know, the reality is a lot of those individuals is, even though we're doing a tremendous job trying to get them the services out in the community they need, we also have to start looking at building those services within the correctional facilities 
rather than having it be a jail, as I've said many times before, really allowing people to graduate from incarceration uh, when that time comes, rather than just being released. Because I do feel that too often people come into the uh, correctional facilities, we don't give them the services they need, uh, and then it's just a revolving door. So thank you for that. Thank you so much, Sheriff. Uh, we're going to go into some of the comments up here. We have uh, actually his hand came down. Uh, Supervisor Ellenberg, please. Thank you. I, I uh, realize that that we are um, fast approaching, if not um, if not blowing by the the intended end of this this meeting. And I and I do, you know, have some regrets that we don't have more time for conversation on the dais. I want to encourage all of the, the city council members on and off of this committee to follow up with any of the county presenters if you have more questions, if you want to work through myself or Supervisor Chavez to help coordinate uh, those meetings or to have additional conversations that don't necessarily have to happen in this setting. Um, we are very open and, and eager to, to do that. Um, what we've kind of the essence i think of what we've talked today about today is that services are not necessarily reaching people who need them at the right time and consistently enough to pre to prevent periods of instability uh in the high utilization that that greta mentioned earlier and that we've all touched on something that i would offer um as a next step is is a is um some exploration around perhaps a coordinated entry pilot for individuals with chronic justice system involvement to opt in to a program that would prioritize them for, for services, intensive care management, and outreach to ensure that stabilizing services are reaching these individuals. There is ample evidence that demonstrates the lower effectiveness of compulsory uh, programs, so that's not necessarily something that that I would like to support, but would encourage everyone to look at examples like Project Welcome Home. Uh, we had a partnership between the county, Abode, and UCSF that selected the most frequent health system users. This wasn't justice, but health system users for a program that scaled the housing first and assertive community treatment models. And this was the first pay for success program in the state. Uh, participants in that program remained housed on average 93% of the time that they were in the study. Uh, and really most pertinent to this conversation, I think, is that those that were randomized to the program compared with those who received the usual care had lower use of psychiatric emergency departments and shelters. So I think that in, if we continue to focus together on, on root causes and treatment and building trust such that we can um, persuade people into treatment, ultimately the outcomes are going to be better both for the people suffering from illnesses and those of us in the community who encounter them than if, um, than if we, we focus really largely on short-term incarcerations. So with that, again, thank you. Thank you all for participating today. I know that a number of folks have to leave and we have to take public comment. Yeah, we'll, we'll okay. Yeah, thank He's you. So, so we'll just, uh, Councilor Rabatra just had one question he wanted to lift up. Um, I told him it would be very brief, and then we'll go to uh, public comment, and then we'll. Uh, thanks for all the stuff which is presented. I think there's a lot to talk about it, but we don't have the time. I want to ask one question. 
the trust program which we described here and it's a lot of success i'm getting a lot of emails from different people saying hey fund more one more team is that something for council member for city of san jose to do or is it a county matter which is already being taken care of and i just need to be aware that it's happening well thank you we actually have four teams now we have a team in west valley north south and the san jose area so at this point and the the west valley is the newest team that's coming on i believe we have adequate staffing at this point to meet the community demand okay thank you chair okay thank you so much so just to reiterate we're gonna we're gonna skip we're going to actually go to public comment and then I'll, I'll state what I was about to share. Will this be a uh, public comment for just B2, Chris? Just for, for, for anything on item two. Okay. We have and public one public speaker card submitted for Xavier. Can you please make your way down to the podium? You will have two minutes to speak. Thank you. I think that speaker has went to the restroom, so we will just move forward. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll we'll go ahead and move forward, and we have a public forum, an open forum at the very end. So so I'll entertain a motion from the city side to to receive the report two A, and we're going to be deferring two B. Move to move to receive approve the report. Okay. So there's Second. a motion okay. to. <laughs> Can I offer a, a friendly amendment, please? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Not go to prolong ahead. this meeting, but the. Presentation 2B is very, very, very important. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, in my friendly amendment, if you can, if we can motion to bring back 2A to PISPIS, but 2B to the full sanos, to the full council. The presentation for for 2B to be uh, to the full city council and 2A to come back to PISPIS. So, so, That's my friendly so if it was solely city staff involved in that, it seems like a natural thing to do, but I know that the 2B involves, I think, folks from the public defenders, district attorney, and so I think it, I think it would require some coordination, but I don't see why we can't invite them to come to the public safety meeting at some point. So um, we, could, we can work internally, with, I'll work internally with staff as we set the work plan of the agenda to figure out how we can make that happen, if that's okay with you. So we, we, we want 2B to come back I'm not even sure it needs to be a friendly amendment, but we can heard your comment and we'll work with Lee and the city manager's office to coordinate with the county partners to see if they can okay. come back. I, well, I would, I would feel more comfortable if it's a friendly amendment. A friendly amendment okay, all right. So is it accepted by the maker of the motion? What, can you clarify <clears throat> it? Because we haven't had a chance to like look at uh, a 2B, so are you saying 2B to come back to us at PISFIS? Is that what you're saying? I'm, I'm asking for 2B to actually come before the city council. For for 2A to come back to PISFIS, but 2B to come to the for city more council. discussion. I mean, no, for the for the for the presentation and the discussion. What uh, we we just had the presentation today, so no, 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 no 2B. 2B. We haven't had 2B yet. Well, we haven't had 2B. No, we had 2A. It, I'm asking for 2B to come back to this to to the city council, full city council. And without going to PISFIS. Without going to PISFIS, correct. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we, we cross-reference some of these items to the full city council when it gets sent up for full discussion, but I guess the, my understanding of the vice mayor's concern is that we haven't even heard it at a committee, 
Um, if, if it gets heard at committee, we can cross-reference it then to the full city council. Are you open to that? Is that, is that a? Yeah, I'm. I'm because that's the point you want yeah, to. Yeah, I don't want to prolong. Right? I don't want to prolong the meeting, but okay. but this the two B is is where I had a lot of yeah. concerns and questions, uh, and I think it's it's really important for our full city council uh, to hear because it's it's not just affecting District Three; yeah. it's it's affecting our whole city, and so. You know, I, I actually also had a ton of questions for, yeah. for 2A. So, you know, I, I will leave my, you don't have to accept it, I will leave my friendly amendment as, yeah. as, as, as 2A coming back to PISPIS with our county and 2B working with our city and our county to make sure that they come back to the full city council. And I will leave it at that. You could accept it, you don't have to accept it, and we can, but I'm okay having 2B come back to the full PISPIS, but I would like for it to come back to the full city council. So. Well, <clears throat> I suggest that we just 2A and 2B go right back to PISVIS. We understand that we'll bring it to full council. Good? With our county? Yeah, yes. yeah at, at this point, yeah. If that, I'm not getting a so, <laughs> yes on the. Uh, with, I think they mean with the county staff. Yeah. Not another joint. Not another joint. Not another joint. Thank you, okay. Supervisor. Yeah. So, so, so I move that to accept the report. With two, yes, this two A and two B go back to PISVIS and then go to full council. Okay, so that is the refined motion on the floor. We good? We second. Okay, we okay. got a second. All right, we have a motion and a second. We'll work out the details after. Thank you. I appreciate that. We'll go ahead and go vote. Would you like to take a verbal vote? Uh, however, whatever is easiest. Okay. Take a verbal vote. Yeah. Jimenez. Yes. Duan. Yes. Kamei. Torres. Nay. Yes. Thank you. And for the county, I will move uh, that we accept the report with the additional direction of consideration of a joint pilot program. Second. Second. Vice Chairperson Chavez? Yes. Chairperson Allenberg? Yes. Thank you. Wonderful. And then we'll go, so before I go to open forum, let me just say I, I suspect some of the folks that were still hanging around were here for this last presentation. Apologize that you've been hanging around. You're not going to be able to present, but uh, we look forward to having you back at a, at a later city committee meeting uh, in which we can hear some of those details because they are very important. But uh, that'll close out that item. We'll go to public forum. Okay, we have two open speaker forum. cards that were submitted. Can Raymond and Cynthia please make your way down to the podium? Please line up along the steps in front of the podium. You will have two minutes to speak. Uh, good morning. My name is Raymond Goins. I'm with Silicon Valley Debug. And um, what I've heard today from the county's response, the people with mental illness, uh, formerly incarcerated, uh, drug abuse, um, and for the reentry services here in this county, I could tell you from my witness that it failed my niece 100% of the time. Uh, three days ago, my niece, who served 12 years in prison, had recently been released, who came home, uh, started suffering drug addiction, mental health, and um, became homeless within the last three or four days. She called me in a state of crisis asking me, uncle, where do I go, what do I do? It was the next morning I picked her up, she was sleeping on the bus right down the street. Um, I took her to the reentry center. Well, uh, some coworkers of mine from D-Bus took her to the reentry center and she was turned away from the reentry center because though she was paroled to this county, because CDCR didn't do a, uh, paperwork, 
she couldn't get county services. So uh, we put her in a, in a sore bruise center for 24 hours so she could sleep and to give me, buy me some time to think, right? Because I'm formerly incarcerated and I don't know how to deal with the situation. And um, so we put her in a 24-hour sorbonne center and the very next day I picked her up and then we tried to find her a place for housing. We took her to two warming centers in San Jose and though we, we entered and the, there was vacant beds there, she was turned away and said she couldn't have a bed because somebody, the person that referred her, didn't do their job. So therefore, she couldn't get, have a warm sleep at night and it was raining, it was freezing outside. So with the help of Debug, we put her in housing for that night. The very next day, we continued to get her help and assistance, and we couldn't get it. This is day, this started on Thursday of last week. We're going on seven days now. She's just now going to Ranger Center, and I'm hoping as I'm talking right now, she's finally getting her services. So all the services this county said they provide for people like my niece. Thank you, next speaker. Hello, my name is Cynthia Dalcourt Longs. Uh, I've heard a lot here today. Actually, I'm a District 1 registered voter, a system impacted family member, a software test engineer, and a debug organizer. I uh, came in late and therefore didn't get to get my comments in, but I've heard a lot here today. But um, my concern had to do with the focus on the 70 people. If we want to talk about a stance, a tough stance on crime, shouldn't we consider major crimes? like crimes against children and seniors, crimes stemming from fentanyl, death, serial killers, murders by police, city and county corruption. Uh, the report by the Public Defender's Office was very good. The review showed a dramatic overrepresentation of people of color. For example, me, being an African-American, oh, I'm getting a little nervous here, I have it all on paper, represent 22% of the population, though we're overrepresented. We, the African-American population, represent 22% of that report, 15 people, though we only represent 2% of the county's demographics. And that's not surprising. The reason we, it's, it's very hard to take that we are arrested and incarcerated. This is all because of the lack of the investment in the non-carceral system and how we are being targeted. Over 90% of those listed have documented mental illness and you all know that today. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time to look at this issue, but then blacks are not being serviced like they should. So please, please look at the data and put the investment where it needs to be. Not. Thank you so much Thank for you. your comments. Appreciate it. And that concludes the public comment. Back to the committee. Okay. And that adjourns the meeting. Thank you so much for everyone's participation. We appreciate you and uh, hopefully you walk away with additional information and we look forward to continuing the conversation. Have a nice day.